We'll hear argument next in number 911030, uh, Pamela Withrow v. Robert Allen Williams, Jr. Mr. Kaminsky, you may proceed whenever you're ready. For the last seven or eight hundred years, uh, the writ of habeas corpus has been uh, one of the crown jewels in Anglo-American jurisprudence. Um, uh, providing uh, a measure of protection uh, for all who share the heritage of the English common law uh, from tyranny and oppression. In this case, uh, I submit to the court that uh, we have uh, in front of us today a classic example of the extent to which habeas corpus has strayed from its original and intended purposes and uh, gives us a paradigm of a uh, federal district court employing uh, a writ of habeas corpus as a writ of federal error. Um, if we take a look at the record of this case, we see that uh, uh, before his arraignment, uh, the respondent made three separate statements uh, to the police, uh, first statement being severable into two separate parts, uh, pre-Miranda uh, segment and a, a post-Miranda segment. Prior to trial, uh, the respondent moved to suppress all three statements on various grounds relating to the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments, and actually prevailed uh, concerning two of those statements. Um, the only statement that the, uh, that the state trial judge admitted into evidence was the first statement, uh, rejecting uh, uh, the respondent's claim that it was obtained uh, unlawfully and in violation of his uh, Fifth Amendment rights. Uh, in a state court appeal, uh, the respondent chose uh, to appeal uh, on matters relating to this particular statement only on grounds related to the Miranda issue. Um, the State Court of Appeals in, in Michigan denied his appeal uh, and issued a, uh, an opinion affirming his conviction. Uh, the respondent then uh, filed an application uh, to the Michigan Supreme Court, which denied review and ultimately filed a petition for writ of certiorari to this court, which it denied back in 1989. Uh, respondent then went to federal district court, filing a petition for writ of habeas corpus. Uh, again, uh, as far as this particular statement is concerned, uh, uh, respondent raised only the Miranda issue. Uh, in her opinion granting the writ, however, um, the, um, the federal district judge not only um, sustained his Miranda claim, in effect uh, overruling the, the finding of the, uh, of the state court that uh, the police had done nothing wrong, but also went on to find uh, the second half of that statement, the post-Miranda statement, and actually both of the other statements that uh, had been suppressed in the state trial court to be involuntary. Um, we appealed to the Sixth Circuit, and while finding uh, parts of the district court's opinion uh, slightly inexplicable, uh, the court nevertheless uh, issued an opinion uh, uh, affirming, and that, that is what brings us here today. Did you complain in the Fifth Circuit, Mr. Kaminsky, about the district courts uh, taking up the involuntariness issue as well as the Miranda issue? Yes, we did. In fact, in, in, the, in the Sixth Circuit, um, I tried to draw a clear distinction between the Miranda claim and a claim of involuntariness. I think there are there are clear precedents from this court, I mean, the Quarles case and Harris versus New York and, and a number of others, where this court has drawn a distinction between uh, Miranda defects and Miranda claims and claims of involuntariness. And that was one of the things that I, I tried to point out in the Sixth Circuit, apparently uh, not as well as uh, I uh, uh, would have hoped, but because um, in any event, they, uh, they rejected that, that particular position. And in well, fact, more specifically, though, did, did, did you object that the involuntariness claim had never been raised in the district? Yes. Court? We in, in a number of points in our brief, what we, what we tried to do was draw a distinction between the Miranda claim and the involuntariness claim. And we even noted in our, our, uh, our brief in the Sixth Circuit that uh, this issue was not before the, the, uh, uh, the district court, be, you know, not only because of the failure of exhaustion, but because it had never been raised in, in the petition for writ of certiorari. So uh, it, it is uh, a little bit mystifying how we, we got to the point of having to argue uh, both the question of voluntariness and the question of, uh, of Miranda. Uh, the Sixth Circuit, however, also drew no distinction between the Miranda claim and, and the involuntariness claim. 
And that is one of the points that we're here to address today. In fact, it seems to me that in many respects the narrowest holding that this Court could issue and perhaps the core of this case is simply the application of Stone v. Powell to Miranda claims. And there are a number of different ways this Court can go about that. Well, is one of your questions in your petition the failure to exhaust? Yes, it is. I think in terms of helping the analysis, it may help us to divide what we commonly consider to be constitutional claims into three different classifications, three different classes of claimed constitutional violations. The first claim would be matters of fundamental fairness. Justice Cardozo in Palco v. Connecticut wrote a rather interesting opinion outlining his conception of what fundamental fairness was. And basically this Court has issued opinions of similar import in recent years. Teague v. Lane, for example, would even apply retroactive changes in the law and habeas review in certain cases relating to the law. Well, if you really raised the exhaustion claim and we agreed with you, well, that would be the end of the case, wouldn't it? No. There would still be the Miranda claim to deal with. The exhaustion claim only refers to the second half of the statement. So as far as that is concerned, that would be the end. I don't know that I see the – well, I guess I can read your questions as well as you can. Okay. Well, see, this is one of the points of some confusion in the Sixth Circuit. If the Court examines the Sixth Circuit appendix, it will see that the respondent in his State court appeal appeared through his statement of the question to be raising only a question of the State constitution. At the time in Michigan, there was a question relating to focus and custody in terms of the triggering mechanism for Miranda warnings. And in large part, his argument in the State court related to that issue. And I had originally challenged the Miranda claim on the question of exhaustion as well. Upon reflection, it seemed that there was enough language in his State court appellate brief to raise the Federal part of the Miranda issue as well. And therefore, I think that part of it is exhausted. But I would have to say that the State court appellate brief is not the same as the State constitution that Miranda would fall into. And we have questions of fundamental fairness and basic due process. There is another class that I would consider to be the Federal criminal constitutional procedural type guarantees that this Court has adopted through its incorporation doctrine. The last class would be constitutional claims relating to rules of deterrence or rules of prophylaxis. And that is the type of claim that Miranda is. And it seems to me that if you take the logic of Stone v. Powell and apply it to the particular fact situations that are likely to occur in a Miranda case, that the legal parallels are rather compelling. And in fact, as Justice O'Connor noted in her concurring opinion in Duckworth, it seems to be even more compelling in the Miranda context because we're not really dealing with an actual violation of the Constitution. We're simply dealing with a violation of a rule that this Court has designed to create a buffer around the actual constitutional violation. Isn't there a very pragmatic difference, though, because in the Fourth Amendment case, if you preclude the litigation of these claims, that's it. It's all over. Whereas if we preclude litigation of Miranda claims, we then face the voluntariness claim. Well, this Court is — Not over. The Federal Court is likely to wind up having to face that claim anyway. In my experience, it is the rare case — It will face that claim anyway if the Miranda point is lost. But if the Miranda point is won, it doesn't face that claim. Well — So I guess what my question boils down to is, assuming you win, every case that — at least I'm talking on pragmatic grounds here — every case that would readily have been disposed of will now turn into a case of much more complicated litigation over voluntariness. And I question 
even if, if one were uh, inclined to accept your view on the abstract, I, I, I question what we, we would be gaining by it uh, or indeed losing by it. Well, Your Honor, I, 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 I suppose that, uh, that reasonable minds can differ in terms of our, our perception of the practical practical benefits. In my experience, it seems that defendants are always raising both issues, and they, they tend to, to treat them as, as twins and see how the, the factual record develops and, uh, and, and argue the point from there. Would, would, you, con- would you concede that in this case, uh, uh, there certainly is a, a voluntariness issue which, uh, which will be litigated? Um, there is a voluntariness issue that could have been litigated. Uh, if the court, however, uh, examines the record and, and examines the tapes, it will see we're not, we are not talking about the uh, kind of voluntariness uh, issue that we, we discussed or the court discussed in Mincy, for example, uh, or in Brown versus Mississippi, where, where you're talking about actual uh, overt acts of physical coercion. I mean, the, if there is a voluntariness issue, it is rather... Uh, rather odd that it not only uh, passed by uh, the, the, uh, the defense attorneys in the state court, but it completely escaped the attention of, of, of anybody up until it was raised uh, sua sponte by the federal district judge. Now, do, we have any, do we have any way of, of gauging the practical effect of ruling your way? I mean, do we have to do this based on our own educated guesses from our own back? Probably. I'm, I'm not aware of any particular studies. Uh, my own sense is that uh, there are a considerable number of Miranda claims. But in any event, if the court looks to the, to the text of the, of, the, uh, of the habeas statute, it does not talk about uh, uh, issuing the writ in, in cases where there is a violation of a prophylactic rule. It limits this courts and the federal courts to cases involving the Constitution, laws, or treaties of the United States. Well, that's you, do, you, do you carry that to the point of saying we have no, the federal courts have no jurisdiction to consider well, a Miranda claim? I think that a very strong argument can be made along those lines. I think that there's, there's a different question to be you raised. Want to, do you want to rest on that argument? Uh, no. I think there's a, there's a, um, there's a uh, distinction to be made between direct appeal and habeas review. I mean, habeas review uh, historically has been a rather limited uh, mechanism or correcting uh, fundamental injustice. And uh, in this type of case, if you are dealing with Miranda claims, you are not necessarily dealing with a fundamental injustice. Uh, as Justice O'Connor noted, uh, uh, in, in her opinion, the mere failure to give warnings does not render evidence uh, inherently suspect or inherently unreliable. Uh, in addition, um, we permit the use of Miranda defective confessions for impeachment purposes and, and for a variety of other purposes as well. So we're not dealing with a class of evidence that is by its nature excludable. We are dealing with a very limited uh, class of evidence that creates a buffer around the actual, const- the actual core constitutional right that's involved. And it seems to me that if we are dealing with a statute where the, the, the federal court's warrant is not to sit in review of what the state court did, but to try to search the record uh, trying to examine for fundamental injustice, it, it, it seems to me that that is going to that should be the responsibility of a well, habeas court. Well, uh, don't you think the Miranda rule uh, uh, plays a role in uh, preventing uh, the uh, the extraction of possibly involuntary confessions? I think it very well may in, in a uh, number and, uh, of different cases. Do you, uh, do you agree that, uh, that there's some, some sense in thinking that involuntary confessions uh, may be unreliable? Oh, I, I don't believe that any real civilized system of justice could, uh, could rely on involuntary confessions at all. Well, uh, so the, the Miranda rules uh, do... Uh, do play a role in in preventing the introduction of possibly uh, unreliable statements in certain cases, Your Honor. I mean, what the Miranda rules do is create a buffer oh, around uh, the right. Stone against Powell has a uh, uh, Stone against Powell. Uh, uh, the Fourth Amendment cases don't uh, have anything to do with the possible uh, reliability, unreliability of the. Uh, of the uh, result reached at the trial. Well, neither, strictly speaking, does a Miranda violation. Well, it prevents it. It, it, it helps. 
You just said it helps, it helps to prevent the uh, extraction of involuntary confession. Well, it, it can in a certain case. Anyway, perhaps I can, I can make the point better by way of illustration. We have a 65-mile-an-hour speed limit on, on most interstates, and if, if that is what the law is supposed to be, um, if the police decide that that law is so important that, uh, that they simply do not wish to, um, to allow anybody to exceed the speed limit, if they adopt a rule that they'll issue tickets every time somebody goes more than 40 miles an hour, you're going to have a great number of people who are issued tickets for exceeding the de facto 40 mile an hour speed limit but never actually reach the, uh, the status of a violation of the law. It seems to me that the Miranda case, the, uh, the Miranda rule deals with situations falling in that buffer as between the 40 and 60 mile, 5 mile an hour uh, uh, range. A little far afield for me. Well, <laughs> sorry, Your Honor. That's, uh, 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 in any event, um, if there are any further questions, I'll be glad to respond to them. Otherwise, I'd like to save some time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Kaminsky. Mr. Roberts, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the Court. The United States believes that the rule of Stone v. Powell should apply to bar the assertion of Miranda claims on habeas corpus if the habeas petitioners had a full and fair opportunity to raise the claim in state court for the same reasons that the rule bars the assertion of exclusionary rule claims on habeas corpus. Like the exclusionary rule, the requirement of Miranda warnings is an extra-constitutional, judicially created rule. Just as the exclusionary rule bars the admission of probative evidence to deter Fourth Amendment violations, Miranda bars the admission of probative statements to deter Fifth Amendment violations. And Do you just think the court had the power to uh, adopt the Miranda rule, Mr. Roberts? The court in Miranda explained its adoption of the extra constitutional rule as a means of vindicating Fifth Amendment interests. Mm-hmm. We're not here challenging the application of Miranda on, at trial or on direct review. We just think that the purposes of the rule have to be assessed in the habeas context. Just but as if asked, what is your position? Uh, I'm, I don't have a position on, on that, Your Honor. Um, we, we don't challenge its application at trial or in, on direct review. Um, but I just think the as Miranda the, rule is a law of the United States within the meaning of the habeas corpus statute. I, I do think the phrase constitution, laws, and treaties, laws can include both statutes and judicially created constitutional common law, as it were. I understand. Is your answer yes? Yes. Um, and, but as the court explained in Stone, that there's little additional deterrent effect from applying the exclusionary rule on habeas corpus, so too there is little, if any, additional deterrent effect from applying Miranda. You have no disagreement corpus. with the proposition that voluntariness can be tested on habeas? No, uh, we agree with that. We, we don't. Is an element of voluntariness whether or not a Miranda warning has been given? Yes. It is a factor to be considered in the totality of the circumstances, yes. So if we adopted your rule, we would be inquiring into whether or not the Miranda warning had been given and its effect in any event in all those voluntariness cases. Well, it would be one of the factors to be considered. This goes to Justice Souter's question. We think there's a very significant gain from excluding Miranda from habeas corpus. Uh, This Court knows from its own Miranda jurisprudence that cases under Miranda can present very difficult technical issues, the content of the warnings, when they're triggered, how they apply to subsequent arrests. Uh, case, in, in cases that the court knows seldom present serious issues of voluntariness under the Fifth Amendment. Extending Stone to Miranda would keep those technical and difficult issues out of habeas corpus, issues that have nothing to do with guilt or innocence, while leaving only voluntariness claims under the Fifth Amendment. That's a significant gain. But which do you think are more difficult, Miranda claims or voluntariness claims? Well, as this Court knows from cases like Duckworth um, uh, and some of the other cases like Prysock, I don't think there's any great distinction uh, how, how they apply in subsequent interviews, when they can be reinitiated, what's the exact content, as was the issue in this case, when are the requirements of the warnings triggered. They're very difficult. bright-line rules generally made decisions easier, and we're supposed to have a bright-line rule there, which we don't have in in the voluntariness. Well, Miranda has been, I guess, could be described as a bright-line rule, but I think the Court has found that it's not so bright in application. What do you think the rule is, Mr. Roberts, when when on habeas corpus, uh, 
there is a you are you are dealing with an with a claim of involuntariness. What does the what does the habeas court do? Well, it looks to the totality of the circumstances and it determines and, and it reviews it de novo. Yes, under Miller against uh, Fenton, it is a, yes, is a de, yes. de novo review. That's a that's a considerable undertaking, isn't it? Well, in in particular cases, it may be. But I suppose when you mentioned Justice Souter, the practical effect. I think what the assumption is that a prisoner is going to sort of raise a claim, even if it's frivolous. Well, uh, and it's considerably a tougher operation than applying the Miranda rules, I would think. Well, but it's an operation that the courts have to undertake now in any event. This isn't going to be an additional... Well, we don't have to take them in, in any event. I mean, in a case in which the Miranda claim succeeds, that's the end of it. Well, that is the end of it, yes, on direct review, and the question is what happens on habeas corpus. What we're suggesting that's going to be the end of it if our rule is accepted. What, what percentage of cases does the Miranda, does, does the Miranda claim uh, succeed? I mean, I guess that's a, that, that, that's a crucial fact, isn't it? When does a, on yeah, because we're, we're going to have to go through the involuntariness uh, anyway, every time a Miranda claim is made, unless we find that we throw the whole thing out because of the Miranda claim, right? Right. So what percentage of, of Miranda claims uh, succeed, do you think, on habeas? I, I don't have any statistics uh, on that. Do we have any reason to think it's like 90 percent? No. Or successful? No. Well, I, I think mo- so probably more don't succeed than succeed. Most don't because... That's, that's certainly my impression. Yes. Uh, do, do you think that the exclusionary rule is a law of the United States that was involved in, in Stone? I think it is what's been described as constitutional common law. Yes. Yeah, I think so, too. Do you have any, and I assume you don't, but I, I don't want to overlook it, do you have any fact, any statistics on the percentage or the number of cases in which the Miranda claim fails and, and voluntariness is then litigated? No, no, I don't. I think the key distinction that the respondent has suggested between the exclusionary rule under the Fourth Amendment and Miranda's exclusionary rule is that the exclusionary rule doesn't prevent a constitutional violation from occurring. That's complete upon the illegal search and seizure. Miranda, on the other hand, respondent argues, prevents a constitutional violation from even occurring and is therefore worth pursuing even on habeas corpus. That I think begs the question. It assumes there's a Fifth Amendment violation to be deterred, to be prevented. As this Court has explained, violation of Miranda is not the same as a violation of the Fifth Amendment. And once that's understood, the distinction cuts the other way. The exclusionary rule, after all, prevents the state from taking advantage of a constitutional violation in every case in which it applies. Miranda sweeps more broadly than the Constitution, so we think the rule of Stone v. Powell should apply a fortiori. And with respect to the significance, the practical impact, it's noteworthy, I think, that 36 state attorneys general have filed amicus, an amicus brief in this case, suggesting that they regard the impact as significant in terms of the respect accorded by the federal system to the finality of state court judgments. Now, turning to the voluntariness question in this case, the statements that were made after the Miranda warnings were given and waived, the totality of the circumstances shows this. We had a lucid individual, not under the influence of drugs or alcohol, not too young to be susceptible to police influence, a veteran of police procedures, he knew the jargon, testified that he had six prior B&Es. The police taped the interview, not something they're likely to do if they're embarked on a campaign to overbear his will. And, of course, as noted, Miranda warnings have been given. Now, in that circumstance, what is it that makes respondent statements involuntary in response to this promise of leniency? Not that it was a but-for cause. Brady tells us that that's not enough. Not that it was a promise of leniency. Fulminante made clear that statements in Bram suggesting that was enough were no longer good law. Not that there was any uh, possibility that this would generate a false admission of guilt. This isn't a case, you know, confess and will release your spouse or your child. In fact, the only condition he had to meet was to tell the truth. Nor is there anything improper about the inducement that was offered in this case. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, as in fulminante talk and will save you from Do you think the voluntariness issue is before us? Yes, I do. Um, uh, well, assuming the court disagrees with the exhaustion point, um, we haven't briefed the exhaustion point. We have looked at the record. It, it does seem to us that uh, voluntariness, the promise of leniency as opposed to Miranda, was not raised in the state system on appeal um, and therefore could be considered not to be exhausted. 
But if it is exhausted, I do think... Well, isn't it also possible the state waived the exhaustion argument? I don't know. But. Uh, the record's very ambiguous in the Sixth Circuit about whether there was a concession to that effect or not. Was it raised in the federal district court? The promise of leniency point... What, what was, was the involuntariness point raised in the habeas court? No, the habeas petition mentioned solely the failure to give the Miranda warnings. Well, isn't, Thomas, that, isn't that a possible obstacle to whether it's properly before us? Well, the district court went on to reach it and decide it. In, in the absence of anybody knowing that it was before it and, and having any opportunity to, uh, to speak to it? Exactly. Uh, there was no uh, trial proceeding. The district, the, it, it was mentioned at the suppression hearing in state court and then, I think, not mentioned any further. And then it uh, reemerged in the district court's opinion. Uh, and that was the first point at which it, it, it resurfaced. And that places it properly before us. Well, to the I think there's properly before us the question of whether it was validly reached. But, but, but uh, well, yes, but but I, I think the court can reach it by being before it. The court can reach it since it was decided by the district court and by the court of appeals. Now, whether it was proper for the district court to reach it is a different question, and I think it it may question we have to consider. Yes, I mean, as rather well as than to judge the record uh, that, that was made by a, by a prosecution that had no notice that this uh, issue was even going to be decided? It, it, the issue did come in as a surprise in the district court opinion, yes. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Roberts. And Mr. Waxman, we'll hear from you. Chief Justice Rehnquist, and may it please the Court, all four federal judges who have considered this case have concluded that a writ of habeas corpus must issue in Mr. Williams' favor for two independent reasons. First, because the prosecution introduced at his trial, as, as evidence of guilt, statements Mr. Williams made in response to custodial police interrogation prior to receiving any Miranda warnings. And second, independently, because the prosecution also introduced at trial statements Mr. Williams made in response to custodial interrogation, by mean, which were elicited by means which rendered them involuntary under the totality of the circumstances. Unless this Court overturns both of those rulings, a writ of habeas corpus must issue and Mr. Williams must be given a new trial. The Miranda issue in this case is simply whether the rule announced by this Court in Stone v. Powell should be extended to claims that a petitioner's rights under Miranda versus Arizona were violated. Or whether we should adopt such a rule, even if Stone against Powell should never, had never been decided. That, of course, you could adopt such a rule. That's not how the question is phrased. And there, the point, the first point I want to make is that there is no challenge in this well, I court. Know, but I take it, I take it that if, say we thought that uh, Stone against Powell was completely different from this case. Uh, it would still be open to us to say, but nevertheless, we should, uh, we should say that the Miranda claims aren't open on habeas. It, certainly, Your Honor, if this Court were to conclude that, that federal courts had no jurisdiction to hear Miranda claims, it, it could and must reach such a conclusion. My point, first point is that there was no challenge, though, there is no challenge in this Court to any aspects of the merits of the Miranda rulings below. And in our view, the rule announced in Stone versus Powell should not and cannot be applied to violations of Miranda's constitutional rules. The rights protected by the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination are so unlike those of the, so unlike those under the Fourth Amendment, and the relationship of Miranda to the privilege is so different than the relationship between MAP and the Fourth Amendment that the concerns that inform this Court's decision in Stone, and we submit no other concerns, counsel favor extension counsel extension, favoring extension of that rule to Miranda claims. And indeed, those factors counsel against extending the rule in stone to Miranda. I'd like to briefly give the reasons why and then explain in more detail why I say this. First, because in complete contrast to the Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule, Miranda is specifically designed to and does both prevent the constitutional violation from occurring and if a violation does occur, it redresses the constitutional injury. Second, unlike Stone, which reduced the burden on federal courts and friction with state courts by taking federal courts completely out of the business of adjudicating the constitutionality of the admission of physical evidence, depriving federal habeas courts of the power to adjudicate Miranda claims will produce no such result. And third, 
Unlike the Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule, Miranda is not unrelated to fairness and reliability at trial. Before I elaborate on those three points, I would like to stress two points which I think are, are, are very fundamental in this case, one about Stone and one about Miranda. Stone versus Powell is not a decision about the scope of the habeas corpus statute. It is a decision about the scope of the judge-made exclusionary rule designed to reinforce the Fourth Amendment. Stone itself makes this very clear, and this important distinction is apparent and reiterated in all of this Court's subsequent decisions that have declined to extend Stone beyond the strict confines of the Fourth Amendment, and with good reason, because Stone is bound up in the unique status of the Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule. With respect to Miranda, the contention that Miranda versus Arizona announced nothing more than non-constitutional rules is wrong, and it critically obscures the the issue in this case. We readily agree that one thing that Miranda versus Arizona did was to announce rules that are not required by the Constitution. The warnings themselves, for example, are not constitutionally required. Miranda says this, and that's what cases like California versus Prysock and Duckworth versus Egan are about. Similarly, the mere occurrence of unworn custodial interrogation absent a use of the statements as evidence at chief at trial, while decried by Miranda, does not amount to a constitutional violation because the statements haven't been used against the defendant as testimony. This is the precise teaching of this court's decisions in Michigan versus Tucker and Oregon versus Elstad. These types of Miranda violations are not at issue in this case. They're not currently enforced on habeas corpus. They're not enforced against the states at all. What is at issue in this case... Excuse me, how are they ever enforced outside of habeas corpus? They, uh, excuse me, they, they, they could, they are not enforced, for example, on direct appeal to this court from a state conviction. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand how, how they are ever enforced unless, uh, unless a non-Mirandized... Uh, confession is thought to be admitted, uh, the fact that you get a confession without Mirandizing is, is cost-free, right? It's, it's well, not enforced in any forum, neither habeas or elsewhere. It's not enforced because under, under Miranda and under this Court's decisions interpreting Miranda, it doesn't announce a constitutional rule. It announces rules that there are good reasons for police to follow. No, but my but, point is that, that, that habeas is not distinctive in that regard. And that's, that's precisely my point, too, Justice Scalia. Those kinds of Miranda violations, like the violations at issue in Egan and Tucker and Elstad, are not at issue in any court. What is at issue here is something fundamentally different. Because in addition to these non-constitutional prophylactic rules, Miranda versus Arizona announced both a fundamental constitutional principle under the self-incrimination clause and a prophylactic rule that this court said was necessary to protect that right. And if I could just go through both of those briefly, I think it would at least point up my understanding of what's at issue in this case when you are asked to apply Stone versus Powell to Miranda claims. Whatever non-constitutional rules Miranda announced, it also unambiguously holds that a suspect in custodial interrogation has a fundamental self-executing right to remain silent. That is, to say nothing that the prosecution can use against him as evidence of guilt at trial. Now that right, Miranda says, under the self-incrimination clause, can be waived but only if the suspect understands the right and understands the consequences of waiving it. That fundamental right was violated. Do you think it violates the Fifth Amendment to make him speak? It violates the Fifth Amendment to make him speak in custodial interrogation if he doesn't understand. I thought the Fifth Amendment was violated only by the introduction of the evidence. Well, that's the, 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 the holding, I, this Court's jurisprudence is that the, the amendment itself is only violated once the statement is used. Your Honor is absolutely correct, and I misspoke. In Michigan versus Tucker, that's the reason why there wasn't a constitutional violation. But it does say 
that in the station house. Well, he has a right not, you say he has an unqualified right to remain silent. That's under the Constitution, does he? That's not accurate. I mean, the, the, this court frequently says it. What it means is that you he have an a, unqualified right not to make statements that the prosecution can use against you as evidence of guilt at trial. Right. Now, that can be waived, but it can only be waived, this court has held many times, if you know you have that right and you understand the consequences of it. And that right, interestingly, was violated in this case because there is no evidence in this record whatsoever that prior to his receipt of the warnings, Mr. Williams understood and intelligently waived his right not to make statements that could be used against him. Now, the, the district, the lower courts, of course, did not base their ruling on that finding because they didn't need to. Because to protect that constitutional right under the self-incrimination clause, Miranda holds that because warnings or their equivalents are necessary to ensure that a suspect understands his rights and the consequences of waiving it, and to overcome the compulsion that's inherent in custodial interrogation, therefore the prosecution cannot, consistent with the privilege, use any unwarned statements made in response to custodial interrogation as evidence in chief at trial. That's he had been Mirandized before in, in other, after other arrests, is that right? Well, the, the record... I don't, I don't find it very persuasive that, that he, you know, that, that he's been tricked into confessing when he's been Mirandized on other occasions. The record on that issue is very, very sparse. There is a very short colloquy that's reported in the joint appendix where he's asked by the prosecutor in the suppression hearing, you've been arrested before, and he says, yes, and he's, the prosecutor says, and you could, you, you, you understood these rights, and he said, well, I've heard some of them, and the prosecutor says, in fact, you, you know what they are, and he says, no, I don't. But th remember that, as this Court reiterated in Colorado versus Connolly, this is a burden that the prosecution has. I submit that there, there is no way, if the Court below had to reach this issue, there's no way that any Court could find that the State carried its burden. But the, what's at issue in this case the is state, the, the State courts must have found that, that the State carried, carried the burden. Yeah. Well, because I... Because they affirmed the conviction. The, the, the State court did affirm the conviction. The trial court found that there was no Fifth Amendment violation. The well, they, 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 that's a finding that the State carried its burden, surely. Well, it's a conclusion of law, I suppose. What, my, my point, Mr. Chief Justice, is that the, the fundamental, con the core constitutional right was not litigated in this case at all. I admit that. He didn't come in and say, look, I didn't knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligent waive, because he didn't have to. All he said is, I was interrogated for 45 minutes without receiving any Miranda warnings. And the question in this case is, are federal courts going to hear that kind of claim? That's the only thing that's really... A straight Miranda claim, so to speak. A straight Miranda claim, but nonetheless, the kind of Miranda claim that this Court has held over and over and over again is one that is required by the Constitution. It's required... In, 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 in Estelle v. Smith, Chief Justice Berger, speaking for the Court, stated the Fifth Amendment privilege is directly involved here because the State used as evidence of guilt the substance of the defendant's disclosures during the pretrial psychiatric examination. In Edwards v. Arizona, Justice White, speaking for the Court, said the use of Edwards' confession against him violated his rights under the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments as construed in Miranda. In, in Orozco v. Texas, this Court held that use of custodial admissions obtained in the absence of the required warnings is a flat violation of the self-incrimination clause of the Fifth Amendment as construed in Miranda. Orozco has been limited by later cases, hasn't it? I'm, I'm not sure, Mr. Chief Justice. It, if it were, I suppose Orozco stands, to the extent that it stands for anything novel, it stands for the proposition that one can be in custody outside the station house. It was the first case that so applied it. One might question whether on the facts Mr. Orozco was in fact in custody, although I certainly would argue that he was. He was awakened by a number of police officers at 4 o'clock in the morning in his, asleep in his home. But that statement of Orozco, as I think the, the quotes that I've just provided to the Court from Estelle and Edwards, and there are many other cases, does remain good constitutional doctrine. In fact, in Elstad itself, 
This Court distinguished its prior decision in United States versus Harrison on the ground that there, quote, the prosecution had actually violated the defendant's Fifth Amendment rights by introducing the confessions at trial. In other words, what's at issue in this case, unlike Egan and Tucker and Elstad, is the violation of a constitutional right, or at the very least, a rule that this Court has repeatedly emphasized is required by the Constitution. And the question is, can this rule be analogized to Stone? We submit that not a single one of the factors that motivated this Court's decision in Stone to restrict the scope of the Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule counsels that result in this kind of a Miranda violation. First of all, the foundation for Stone was the recognition by this Court in many, many cases following MAP that the Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule was not a personal constitutional right or a personal right of the defendant because it can neither prevent the Fourth Amendment violation from occurring, nor can it redress the Fourth Amendment injury that the, that the defendant has suffered. Rather, as Justice O'Connor explained in her concurring opinion in Duckworth versus Egan, the Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule is a structural device designed to promote sensitivity to constitutional values through its deterrent effect. It's, it's a constitutional rule, but it's constitutionally required where and only to the extent empirically it serves the function of general deterrence. In instances where there's no empirical basis for the rule, for example, where the police are acting in good faith, as this Court held in Illinois versus Krull and United States versus Leon and Janus, there's the, the, the rule simply does not exist. It doesn't extend that far. And that's what this Court decided in Stone. In Stone, this Court concluded that since the deterrent effect, quote, if any, of applying that deterrent rule in collateral proceedings is negligible at best, and the societal costs of enforcing it on federal collateral proceedings substantial, therefore this Court held that this judicially created deterrent remedy simply doesn't include resort to federal habeas courts. Now, Miranda is totally different from that on every score. In the first place, unlike the Fourth Amendment, which has nothing whatsoever to do with trials, the Fifth Amendment self-incrimination clause is first and foremost a trial right. The very purpose of the clause is to protect against the introduction at trial of compelled statements of the defendant. Indeed, unlike the Fourth Amendment, which is violated by an unreasonable search regardless of whether a trial ever occurs, there no violation of the Fifth Amendment self-incrimination clause is ever completed. Well, Mr. Waxman, if what is really driving the Miranda requirement of certain warnings is a concern about voluntariness of the statement before it's offered at trial, why shouldn't the focus on habeas go to that question rather than to some technical question of whether certain magic words were articulated? Why isn't it better that we focus on habeas on the real issue rather than some peripheral issue? Well, uh, Justice O'Connor, I have two answers, and I, I hope I'll be able to remember both of them. The first one, uh, and the less substantive one, is I, I don't believe that it is, it is in this Court's power to decide which constitutional claims are better to reach and which aren't. This Court could decide, as it did in Stone, that there simply is no Fourth Amendment claim that a, a petitioner you, you, Do you take the position that the Miranda warning in all its technicality is constitutionally mandated? No, no and I, I perhaps I wasn't clear enough. The, the warnings themselves and even the prohibition against unwarned interrogation is not constitutional. What is constitutional is the rule that the introduction of an unwarned statement at trial violates the Constitution. Now, the other answer I have to Your Honor, and the more substantive answer I have, is that what Miranda versus Arizona stands for is the proposition that the self-incrimination clause imposes a standard different than 
and in addition to the voluntariness standard. Under the self-incrimination clause, it is not simply enough to show that a defendant's statement was voluntary. If that were the case, there would have been no point in ever applying the self-incrimination clause to the states in the first place because the voluntariness test has always adhered in the Fourteenth Amendment and in the Fifth Amendment itself. Instead, the self what Miranda holds is that the self-incrimination clause, A, applies in the station house, and B, require, allows a suspect in custody the privilege not to make any statements that can be used against him as evidence of guilt at trial unless he knowingly and voluntarily waives that right. And I submit that this Court's decision in Miranda v. Arizona is replete with references to the fact that, of course, these cases would not have been otherwise decided if the only issue was voluntariness. Well, and we're it, not bound by all the dicta in Miranda, sure. No, no, I, and I, but, but I don't think that that is dicta in Miranda. In fact, I think if one examines Justice Harlan's dissent in Miranda, uh, one can see very clearly that certainly he understood that the Court was announcing a constitutional principle. If I can just quote the beginning of Justice Harlan's dissent, Having decided that the Fifth Amendment privilege does apply in the police station, the Court reveals that the privilege imposes more exacting restrictions than does the Fourth Amendment's voluntariness test. It then emerges that the Fifth Amendment requires for an admissible confession that it be given by one distinctly aware of his right not to speak and shielded from the compelling atmosphere of interrogation. From these key premises, the court develops the safeguards of warnings, counsel, and so forth. The, similarly, this court in Michigan versus Tucker stated, before Miranda, the principal issue in these cases was not whether a defendant had waived his privilege against self-incrimination, but simply whether his statement was voluntary. Mr. So, Mr. Waxman, but, but surely the, the, the exclusionary rule is a constitutional rule. Surely. And yet we, we have drawn the line on habeas with respect to that. Well, and, and, and how can you square that with your, with, with, with your earlier assertion that we have no power or no right to make a distinction between, uh, between various constitutional rules? Uh, now, what you say is, well, we, we did it in stone on the basis of the purpose of the constitutional rule, and we can't do it here on the basis of the purpose. Perhaps that's so. That does not establish that we can't do it here on some other basis. Well, yeah, Justice Scalia, the, the, the fun, when, when, I, when I agree with your statement that the exclusionary rule is a constitutional rule, let me make sure that you and I both agree on all what I understand to be the premises of that statement. The Fifth Amendment self-incrimination clause itself is an exclusionary rule. In addition to that, more, it, it, it's quite clear, it seems to me, under the core Fifth Amendment right, that if, if Mr. Williams came to this court and said, look, those statements were taken from me, I had with no knowledge whatsoever that I had a right to remain silent or they could be used against me, and the state agreed with that, the Fifth Amendment itself, without reference to any prophylactic rule, would require, by its own operation of law, that those statements be excluded. Now. Miranda also applies an exclusionary rule which does sweep somewhat more broadly because in some indeterminate number of cases there are people who were, whose statements are unworn statements are introduced and in fact it was a law professor who teaches constitutional law and may, was not at all coerced and made a deliberate decision to waive his rights and try and talk his way out of it. But, but constitutional law is filled with prophylactic rules like that. Indeed, it would be impossible for the, for the courts to give meaning to the core principles of the Constitution without access to prophylactic rules like this. Now, the reason that I'm saying in this particular case, let me not take on the burden yet of all prophylactic rules in the Constitution. With respect to this case, the fundamental reason why what this court did in Stone should not and cannot be done here is that in Stone, this court was not dealing with an exclusionary rule that represented the personal right of the defendant in any way. It was a rule that was designed because over the course of years, this court, 
threw up his hands and said, there has to be some way to make, to enforce respect for the Fourth Amendment. Was his, surely his constitutional right at trial in the state court before habeas? It was his constitutional right to have that evidence excluded. It was a. Did he not have a constitutional right to have it excluded? Y y the Constitution required that it be excluded. I don't think one can read this court's decisions in Calandra and Elkins and Linkletter as saying that it was his right. I think was not his right. Somebody else could have asserted it. He can assert it. But those, th this court was careful to emphasize throughout, and it certainly emphasized in Stone, that it was a constitutional right. Otherwise, it could not have been applied to the right. states. Right. But it was not one that either prevented the Fourth Amendment injury from occurring or redressed it in any way. Well, I understand that. But all, all we're saying then, is, I, I think, I guess we're, we're in agreement that, that, that you can, on habeas, enforce, decide that because of the nature of habeas, some constitutional rights need not be enforced. Thereafter, the, 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 the disagreement is, is over whether the reasons for enforcing it here are as, ju uh, for not enforcing it here, are as justifiable as the reasons for not enforcing it in Stone. And, and, With all and Mr. Mr. Waxman, uh, it seems to me that when you have a, before a Stone, what you were doing when you had a, a Fourth Amendment issue bef before you, you were, Really, really asking in most of the cases whether or not there had been a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Yes, that's correct. Namely, whether there had been an unreasonable search or seizure. That's uh, correct. And uh, that's, that was the issue uh, in most of, most of the cases. And yet in Stone, we said that you needn't face, uh, decide that constitutional. And that is a personal right that they were deciding well, I, in with, those cases. With all due respect to, to both of you, and I, I say this with great trepidation, First of all, Justice Scalia, I do. Don't worry. We won't. <laughs> I don't want you to go back and say bad things about No hard feelings, Mr. Waxman. Ju go on. Justice let, us, let us have it. <laughs> Very well, Your Honor. Please, please do not let me be misunderstood on this very critical point. I do not agree with you that this court can decide that some constitutional rules can be enforced on habeas corpus and some can't. I disagree with you on that point most more vociferously than anything else in this case. What this court said in Stone is not that. What this court said in Stone is the Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule doesn't exist in habeas corpus, just as in those direct review cases like Leon, it said it doesn't exist where there's good faith reliance. In St as a result of Stone versus Powell, there is no right to apply. So if yep. we're to rule against you here, we would have to say that Miranda doesn't exist on federal habeas. That's correct. But I mean, you know, the, 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 there are arguments pro and con, but I don't see that it turns on the particular phraseology. Oh, I, I agree, Your Honor. And if it turned on the particular phraseology, I would have become a, a bunch of noodles. Uh, my mind would have disintegrated a long time ago reading all this, co this court's and the lower court's habeas uh, uh, Miranda jurisprudence. I'm How do you think we feel? <laughs> if I had the opportunity to switch places with you, Justice White, I would. My, my point, but this is, this is serious, my point, Mr. Chief Justice, is um, that this is, this is a case in which one cannot dismiss Miranda versus Arizona as dicta or as merely announcing non-constitutional rules. Miranda announces something, a sacred and fundamental self-executing right under the self-incrimination clause. And that's why this case is different. I, yes, I, but I, that self-executing right can be enforced without Miranda. You will agree with that. It, it could be enforced without Miranda, but this court in Miranda held that there was every good reason not to. I mean, one can say that every fundamental right may be somehow could be enforced without access to a rule of application. Well, this, this one could be enforced, for example, if you go, if, if you, uh, go beyond voluntariness to waiver of the privilege against self-incrimination. This could be enforced simply by saying, um, we will examine uh, every, uh, uh, every question of the, uh, every issue on admissibility of a confession uh, to, to try to determine whether he was aware of his Fifth Amendment right uh, and, and, and hence his speaking could be construed as waiving it.
we can do that may be a very awkward inquiry, but we can do it without having a Miranda rule. It's so awkward that this Court explicitly held in Miranda that because it is so impossible to determine what actually went on in the station house, and because it is so impossible for courts after the fact to gauge the amount of coercion or compulsion or the atmosphere, that it, it heeded its own words and plea in Coulomb versus Connecticut and announced this rule. Of course, one could but, say... But isn't it equally impossible to uh, enforce the Fourth Amendment without an exclusionary rule? Everybody knows the tort remedy doesn't work. Well, I, I submit that, that that is a completely different question because when one is, quote, enforcing... But isn't the answer the same? No, it's sure, not. You can't, you can't enforce the Fourth Amendment effectively without the exclusionary rule. I, I think that there is great cause to, to question whether, one, whether the exclusionary rule causes it to be enforced, period, one in which this Court has held many times. But it is a fundamental of the Fifth Amendment self-incrimination clause that it includes an exclusionary rule. If I could just say one word, please, about, if, I, if I have time, about the exhaustion point, because I want to make sure that, I'm, that, that the Court is clear, at least, on what my position is. Our position is that the exhaustion claim raised in this Court should not be considered because it is the, the, the end game of a deliberate strategy of the State to sandbag the Federal Courts in violation of what this Court in Granbury versus Greer said should not be allowed to happen. This, the, the prosecutor is now saying that at, at oral argument it's clear that the state invited the Court of Appeals to overlook the exhaustion argument without making any distinction whatsoever in its briefs or an oral argument between Miranda and voluntariness. And the Court of Appeals explicitly found that at oral argument the exhaustion position had been effectively conceded by the state. That, thank, thank you, you. Mr. Waxman. Uh, Mr. Kaminsky, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, I have a, just a few brief points in, in rebuttal. Um, uh, counsel for respondent has, uh, has uh, questioned whether this court really uh, can or should uh, limit uh, Miranda claims on habeas review. I, I would simply cite this court to... Uh, 28 U.S.C. 2243, which authorizes the habeas court uh, to dispose of the matter as uh, law and justice require. It seems to me that if this court concludes that it is a better use of the federal judiciary's time not to delve into the technical aspects of the Miranda claim on habeas, but simply to delve into the, the very heart of the Fifth Amendment uh, to try to uh, prevent any sort of fundamental injustice involving involuntariness, that is certainly within this court's power. I think. Uh, 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 Brother Counsel and I may disagree about whether uh, that would be a wise thing to do, but I think this Court certainly has the authority to do that. Um, counsel also mentioned the, the four federal judges who have considered this and uh, their conclusion uh, on, on the merits of this case. Uh, I, I would not want this Court to, look, uh, to overlook the, the 20 judges on uh, direct appellate review, the 20 uh, uh, judicial officers who uh, passed on the Miranda claim and found that it uh, found it to be uh, meritless. Um, I think that essentially goes to the heart of why uh, Miranda claims do not belong on federal habeas review. Uh, habeas petitioner, if he has had a full and fair hearing or an opportunity for a full and fair hearing in the state court and has Did all law. state judges agree with the same result on Direct review. I beg your pardon. Weren't the state courts divided on the issue? Under no, not not on this issue. The the issue that that uh, they were divided on oh. was the question of effective assistance of counsel. There was some some question about whether a plea offer had been conveyed to the defendant, and that's the issue that, that caused this. Did the Michigan Supreme Court unanimously deny review? Yes, it did. And this court uh, denied cert without uh, without a dissenting justice as well. Um, lastly. Um, uh, Brother Counsel has made the point or has uh, made the assertion that the Fourth Amendment does not exist on federal habeas review. That is simply incorrect. What uh, is true is that on uh, habeas review, this Court's inquiry into Fourth Amendment concerns is limited to whether there was a full and fair hearing of the matter uh, in the state courts. If the Court finds that uh, there, was, there was ample opportunity to fully litigate the matter and that the petitioners other due process rights were not violated, that is the end of the matter. But if it finds that uh, uh, for one reason or another 
um, the petitioner was precluded from raising the Fourth Amendment claim in state court, then it simply goes on and, and uses the mechanism Congress has established for resolving the claim on the merits. Um, lastly, I would simply remind the Court, uh, it doesn't really seem to be any, any disagreement between uh, Brother Counsel and myself that Miranda does sweep more broadly than the Constitution. Uh, it seems to me that uh, Justice O'Connor's point was absolutely correct. Once the matter passes through the, uh, the state appellate system and we get to, uh, to, to the federal habeas court, this court should be concerned not with the technical rules, not with the rules at the periphery of, of all these amendments, but rather with the core constitutional uh, right that is involved here. And in the Fifth Amendment context, that right would be uh, the question of involuntariness. Uh, are there any other questions? Thank you, Mr. Kaminsky. Thank you. The case is submitted.